Pillar Ministries. And really, the, just so you know, in a sense, there's four pillars to the ministry that this ministry, hey, there we go, that this ministry is involved in uh, churches, schools, radio, missions. Yes, of course, missions. Yeah. As in Luther. Um, yeah, so it's a, it was, we had a great time. I got to preach at all three of the services at kind of the Mothership Church back in New Jersey. I never want to live in New Jersey because it was so hot. I got to tell you, the East Coast is hot and muggy. What's that? Did they give you a fan? You know what? Not until the third. I preached Saturday night in a smaller venue. Then the, their big venue was on Sunday morning. And that for, after the first service, I was, yeah, you, you would have thought I just jumped into a pool. <laughs> And then I saw a fan on stage that no one was using, and I asked if I, and then they plugged it in, and so, salvation. It was, it was good. I'm a sweater. Sorry, that's just who I am. All right, let me pray as we're going to jump into God's Word this morning. Father God, thank you once again for your Word and just how it uh, works in our lives and how your Spirit moves and, and changes us as we, as we allow it to do the work that it needs to do. And so we pray, God, as we look in today's uh, passage, God, that your Spirit would lead us, guide us, teach us what we, what we need to hear, show us, God, what, uh, the areas of our lives where we need to submit to your incredible Word. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. All right. Well, today we begin a four-part series in really what I really believe is one of the most extraordinary books of the Bible. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. And really, it's a book that, if you think about it, really has all the elements of a world-class romance novel. It really does. Of the best-selling, it's got tragedy, it's got loss, despair, triumph, hope, loyalty, devotion. There's a hero, there's a heroine. There's, of course, a central love story. It's, a, it's an amazing book, and I'm really excited that we're going to be spending some time. And really, it's, only one, of the, it's one, of the only, one of the only two books in the Bible that's named after a woman. Can you pay attention with the other one? Exactly. Esther. Exactly. So it's going to be, it's going to be fun to jump in. Yet, un, unlike a romance novel, we're going to see that the story, in really a really real way, is a story that we're all involved in, that we're actually really a part of. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of deep sorrow, coming from deep sorrow to glorious hope. The book of Ruth is really, it's an affirmation of God's tremendous, loyal love and devotion towards his people. Even in the midst of tremendous heartache and loss and difficulty. So I just want us to dive in because we're going to spend a significant, we're going to cover, we're just, this is four, the book of Ruth is four chapters long. We're going to do it in four, in four uh, weeks, okay? So let's just jump right into that first chapter. Let's look first though at the first five verses of Ruth chapter one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were, uh, yeah, <laughs> Malon and Chilion. Go for those and your kids. There were, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Those two, they took Moabite wives. The names of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived about, they lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion died. 
so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. Exciting opening. Not a, not a, not a fun, light story, is it? Um, and we see that at first it talks about how this story takes place during the time or the period of the judges. And what the period of the judges was, this is in Israel's history when in Israel was their leadership consisted of judges that God would raise up to rule this people. That he would appoint them to do that. This, this took really place in between the time from Joshua. Remember Joshua took over for Moses up until King Saul. So that's what was going on, approximately like 400 years in that area. This is, this is that time. And really, this was a really dark time. This was a dark, dark time in Israel's history when people lived their lives in much of the time in rebellion to God. I know the guys, the men's Bible study, we studied the book of Judges. And, and sometimes it was depressing <laughs> to, to see the, the massive amount of rebellion, when, even when God would show his goodness. And we really get a picture of the condition of the people of Israel during this time of Judges. And really one of the best pictures is it's throughout the book of Judges, but the book of Judges ends right where Ruth begins, right before Ruth begins. And it says this in the very last verse, it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is what that 400-year period looked like. Everybody just says, there's no one leading us spiritually. There's no, we're just going to do whatever we want. And the consequences of that ensued on a regular, regular basis. And this is the period where this takes place. Sometime in here, they don't know exactly when, but this story, a true story, uh, took place. Uh, well, first of all, we see that there's a famine, all right? We saw there's a famine in the land, which prompts this man, Elimelech, along with his wife, Naomi, to take their two sons and to leave their hometown of Bethlehem, which is in Judah, and they go to the land of Moab. Obviously, it must have been more fertile there, so that's what they left to do. Then we see in verse 3, though, Elimelech dies and leaves Naomi to raise her sons by, all by herself, and that, but the good thing is, though, even though how difficult that would have been back then, so difficult, it sounds like things got a little bit better as because some hope came along because Naomi's kids got married. Her sons got married and went to two women. One was Orpah, which, by the way, I found out that that was, this is a side note, and don't take this away from the sermon as the main thing. You know that Oprah Winfrey, that's, was, that's her name. Her, she was named after Orpah in the Bible, but people kept on saying it wrong, so they call her Oprah. So don't, that's not the, that's not, it's not one of the key headings of this sermon, but just something I just, I found out. So they got married, one to Orpah and one to Ruth, okay? Yet things seem to have gotten better for Naomi. They're starting to get, they're starting to look up, okay? Her husband has died, she's a widow, but okay, I got these daughter-in-laws. I have a couple, I have two daughter-in-laws and it's wonder, wonderful, wonderful especially since I had four sons. I had no idea what it was like to have women in the home except my wife. Um, so that's been, that's been wonderful. Um, but she gets these, she gets these daughter-in-laws. But then after 10 years, what happens? They die. They die as well. So not only is Naomi a widow, now she has no sons to care for her, which really would make it very, very difficult in that time. Her, really, her sources of natural provision and her sources of protection were now gone. There was no system back then that would take care of the, 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 the religious leaders were supposed to be taking care of the widows and the orphans, but they weren't doing it. 
back then. So there was no, it was a tough time. And add the fact to that that there was no one to carry on their family name. And since most likely she was past childbearing years. And really, in that culture, really there was no greater tragedy than for a family to cease to exist, to no longer have their name, to be gone. So this is a tough time. This is a tough time for her. And we even, we even see how tough it is. And notice that back in verse 5, by the time that the writer gets just to verse 5, he simply calls her what? The woman. She's just like, just as the woman who was left without her two sons and her husband. It's as if Naomi really had lost all of her sense of identity. Who am I? What is going on with my life? For Naomi, her situation was bleak. It was gloomy. It was hopeless. It was sad. This is the picture we get, that opening of this book. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt just like, oh, everything seems to be going wrong? You may never experienced all that Naomi has experienced, the same situation, the dire situation she has. Yet you may have been experienced, maybe you've experienced one difficulty over another. Have you ever had that time in your life where this goes wrong, then this goes wrong? It just keeps happening. Or maybe you've got one situation in your life that just will not get better. It seems to drag on and on and on. And really, so often, these are times when we, when we find ourselves in these difficult situations, wondering or, or questioning why, why, why would an all-loving, powerful, wise, and knowing God, why would he allow this? Why would he allow this situation to happen? Why would he allow me to lose my job? Why would he allow my marriage to fall apart? Why would he allow my kids to go off the rails? Why would he allow this illness or this death? And we, just, and, we just, and we kind of sit in it, and we start to question, how could this happen? Or at least, why aren't we getting some relief? Where's the relief from this situation, this pain and this heartache? Doesn't God want the best for me? Doesn't God love me? Can you imagine? Naomi must have been feeling this. Because these are honest and these are real concerns, concerns that I'm sure Naomi was going through. And really what these go to, to the core, is as what the core of this is dressing is something that we call God's sovereignty. We're going to be talking about that this morning. God's sovereignty. Because that's really is what is at stake here. Number one on your notes, if you want to, those of you that want to, we have little note things you can take, follow along if you want. Number one in your notes for the fill in the blank is God being sovereign means that he ultimately has the power, wisdom, and authority to do as he chooses within his creation and that nothing happens outside of his influence or authority that he is in absolute control over every detail in every moment of our lives. That's a fairly, not comprehensive, but a good way to kind of put all of what God's sovereignty kind of really means in a basic way. That's what God's sovereignty is. And the powerful truth is 
What we're going to see from this story throughout these four chapters is number two on your notes. God oftentimes allows or sets in motion hardship or adversity in our lives in order to set the stage for an unexpected and astonishing victory. Opportunities for us to experience him in, a, in deeper ways than we ever imagined. That we could ever imagine. I know these are long on here, but I thought that would be good to help you under, us understand what this is all about. And why God allows certain things. things. Really, God so often allows these things to happen for us to be able to learn to understand him and get to know him and experience him in deeper ways that we never would if we hadn't gone through these hard and difficult situations. Back in, you know, remember Apostle Paul? Remember Apostle Paul prayed, I want to know Christ and his what? Suffering. Paul wanted to know Jesus. He wanted to experience Jesus at such a deep level that he knew that in order to experience Jesus, what it meant to really know Jesus, it would mean experience that all that he's experiencing, the suffering he went through. I think a lot of us would say, I want to know Jesus. You know, we used to sing as a kid, I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. We used to say, do we really want more of Jesus? Because if we really want to know Jesus, if we really want to be intimate with him, if we really want to understand the depth of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, then we need to understand and embrace what suffering is about. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. It is going to happen. Now, sometimes we suffer because of our own sinful desires and our own sinful nature, but God is going to use suffering. And if we want to know Jesus... I know I've had that prayer before. I've read that and thought, okay, Jesus, I want to know you and I want to know your suffering. And when I pray that, I kind of pray it with a, <laughs> you know, I hope you heard that right, you know, or not at all. You know, it's, like, it's hard. It really is hard, but it's really a part of this whole package of understanding God and his sovereignty. Number three on your note says, oftentimes when God seems farthest away he may actually be setting the stage for intervening into our situation by showing his tremendous loyal love and devotion towards us. And here's the thing. Often it's in the very smallest ways. Small ways, little ways that we don't even see oftentimes, but we're meant to see how good God is. And we're going to see this through as, as we go through this book of Ruth. We're going to see God do this with Naomi and with Ruth. And we, get, and we really get a glimpse of this as we go into the next section here. Uh, look at verse, verse 6, and we'll read for a little while there. It picks up the story. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, Naomi, rose with her daughters-in-law, to return for the country, from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out, set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with, this, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband, then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and she said to her, and they said to her, "No, we will return with you 
to your people. So we get to see this. Here's the first little intervention. The first little intervention by God in Naomi's life is by bringing her word that he has ended the famine back in Judah. And what this is doing now is this is setting in motion her return and all the things that are going to transpire once she is there. So she sets out. We see that she sets out with her two daughters-in-law. Yet we, it says that as they're going along, somewhere along the way, Naomi turns to them and tells them to go back. Go back so you can get married and have a happy life and enjoy life instead of returning with me to this, this foreign land that you don't even know anything about. Yet we see that Orpah and, and Ruth refuse and they, to, to go with her. They insist and, and insist on returning with Naomi to her homeland. And we see this touching scene where they, they embrace each other and they cry. You can sense this deep love that is going on between these three. Now, having, persu- having failed to persuade her daughters-in-law to return home, to go back to their homeland, no, Naomi now decides to pull out the big guns. Okay, she's going to pull out the big guns in order to persuade them. She's going to, do, she's going to get crazy here, okay? Listen to what she says in order to try to get them to, to go back. But Naomi said, verse 11, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, if I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this very night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for you, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So we see that Naomi using some rather outrageous, really rhetorical appeals. She tells them, listen, even if it were possible for me to marry tonight, if it possibly get married tonight and then have two sons, conceive that night, have two sons nine months later, are you really willing to wait? No. You're, you're saying you're going to wait for me, for them and marry them? It won't happen. It won't happen. Besides, in Naomi's mind, her life is so difficult because in her words, it's actually, it's not just difficult, exceedingly bitter, she says. My life is exceedingly bitter because she believes that God has turned his back on her. Why should you come with me? Don't come with me. If you come with me, you're just going to reap what I'm, you're going to be a part of this thing too. It's going to be absolutely miserable. There's nothing good awaiting you if you come with me. Interesting, though, that the word that Naomi uses here to describe God, you know, God, we know that God has a lot of different names. The word that Naomi uses to describe God here is Shaddai. Shaddai. Shaddai, which means almighty, all-powerful. That's what that means. So she's acknowledging that God is almighty, that he's all-powerful, Yet what's happened here is that her circumstances has caused her to have a, in a sense, a self-absorbed mindset towards her suffering. That's all she can see. She can only see how miserable her life is. I don't know about you, but I've been there. You ever been there before? When all you can see is the desperate situation that you're in. Number four on your notes. We know in our hearts 
God is almighty, all-powerful, and even in control. Yet our difficult circumstances could cause us to become self-absorbed and to be tempted to feel like God is somehow against us. Instead of trusting, he will ultimately work for our good. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're not, you're not disowning God. You don't say, I don't want anything to do with you, God. But you're definitely feeling like the hand of God is against you for some reason. God has caused this. And that's, all, and that, and that's it. And that's all you see from this. Okay, so it's going to be misery. So often it's easy for us to get that, make that to be the focus. The truth is we want our suffering to make sense, don't we? If I'm going to go through heartache, I want to understand why, right? God, why am I going through this? God, why? We do those kinds of things. We want it to make sense, to be able to stand, understand the reasoning behind the suffering that we're going through. Yet as we're going to see that's exemplified in the, in the life of Naomi, in his sovereignty, God is often in the process of intervening in ways that we could never imagine. We need to remember that. We need to remember that that's what God is doing with our suffering. Again, we see another, we see this a touching um, uh, emotional scene again. We see these women, they just, uh, with Orpah, Orpah, she's, they're just crying. And Orpah just says, okay, I'll go, I'll go. She's not doing anything wrong. She's just submitting to, to Naomi's request. So she gives a farewell kiss to Naomi while Ruth, it says, clings to Naomi. You know what's interesting about that word cling? It's the same word used in Genesis when, when God said that a man shall leave his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. That's deep, isn't it? That's deep. This is the display of deep love and commitment by Ruth. This is no small thing. She is deeply in love and committed to Naomi. In his commentary, uh, Arnold, you can help me with that, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he writes this. I love this thing he says. While Orpah chose to become a wife again, which is fine, Ruth chose to become a daughter. Orpah did the sensible thing, which I think a lot of us would do. Ruth did the extraordinary and unexpected thing. We really need to see that as we start off into this story, that Ruth is doing something extremely extraordinary here, not just by returning with Naomi, but pledging this incredible love and commitment and loyalty to her. And we're going to see even further how she goes on with that. Number five on your notes, Ruth exhibit, what Ruth exhibits is a picture of the extraordinarily loyal committed love and devotion God has towards us. And it's really a love that is displayed throughout the Bible. Isn't it great when God gives us, he kind of throws us a bone and says, here's what I want you to be like. Oh yeah, by the way, and here's an example. We have that in Jesus. But isn't it great when regular old people, we get to look at them and that's what Ruth is doing for us right here. And showing us a love that's displayed throughout the Bible. Jeremiah even says this in Lamentations. He says, the steadfast love, steadfast, that's the same word, hesed, is the, is the Hebrew word, hesed. It's this incredible love 
that the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So we need to get in our head. Look at the love that Ruth is showing towards Naomi. This is the kind of love that God, but in a perfect way, has towards us. Now, again, we see Naomi, she pleads with Ruth <laughs> to return. Go with, go with Orpah. Yet Ruth, here's an interesting thing. I love this next passage. Probably one of the most richest passages in the Bible. R Ruth comes back with a strong case for staying with her. Okay? These are, like I said, these are some of the most powerful expressions of loyalty and devotion that you are going to read in the Bible. Look at what she says in, in verses 15 to 18. She says this. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to be with her people and to her gods. Return after your sister. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge or where you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So you see that although Naomi pleads with Ruth to return essentially to her religious and national roots, just like Orpah's doing, Ruth pleads with, with, with Naomi and says, don't pressure me anymore, okay? Please don't ask me anymore. And then what she does is she makes these three extremely bold statements that confirm her loyalty and devotion to Naomi. Okay, the first one, first one is this, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge or live, I will live. What, what, she is say, what Ruth is saying here is that whatever and wherever the future may take you, I will be by your side. No matter what. Done deal. Second statement. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. You got to understand how extraordinary this statement is that she is making. She's essentially renouncing her ethnic and religious roots and adopting the ethnicity and the religion of Naomi. That's huge. For her, her people will now be the people of Israel. And by the way, these people will probably be very intolerant of who she is. Because the people of Moab, since the time that the Israelites entered the promised land, were their bitter enemies and the most grotesque worshipers of killing their, their, their sons and daughters and just the crazy stuff they did. But she's willing to identify with them. And her God will now be Yahweh. That will be her God. This is no small thing. Remember in Naomi's mind, God has turned against her. So Ruth is actually saying, oh, you're telling me your God has his hands against you? That's all right. You know what? He's going to be my God. That's incredible. Do you see the commitment and the loyalty and the love that she has for her? Ruth is determined to show Naomi her ultimate loyalty and devotion. And in the third statement, she says, where you die, I will die. 
and there I will be buried. Here, Ruth is what she's essentially doing. is She's extending her devotion beyond Naomi's death. It, meaning that she intends, after you die, I will continue to live out my days in that land, in my adopted land. That's amazing. Oh, amazing. Ruth finishes her, uh, making her case with an oath. She says, may the Lord do to me more also if anything but death parts me from you. What Ruth is literally invoking God's punishment if she fails to follow through with this commitment. Talk about total and permanent commitment. Amazing. So sensing Ruth's fierce determination, Naomi, you know, all right, I'm done. <laughs> she puts her argument to rest. Okay, so now we're going to look real quick, and we're going to look at the scene of the return to Bethlehem. Look at verses 19 to 21. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So we see they enter into Bethlehem there, and there's excitement concerning Naomi's return. Hey, hey isn't that, that's Naomi. Look at, no way, look. Remember, remember she left us quite a while ago. What's going on? I, I wonder what brought her back. Why is she, and, and, and where's Elimelech? Where, where, is, where are her two sons? And, and, and who's that lady? Who's, who's that lady with her? So they're asking all these questions, but Naomi responds by telling them to no longer, don't call me Naomi anymore. Because Naomi, I wish they were here. Um, we have a Naomi. The Wongs were here. We have a Naomi. Naomi, what, that, what Naomi literally means is pleasant or lovely. Don't call me pleasant or lovely. But she has to be called by a name that she believes better matches her life circumstances and all that how God has dealt with her. She asked them to call her Mara, which means bitter. We've heard, we've heard a joke before. What a bitter old hag or what a bitter old... That's what she, call me that. That's my life. That's the lot in life that I have from God here. Remember, she's not rejecting God. She's not rejecting him. She's just being honest is how she sees her circumstances. Since she still believes God is in control. She still does. That he's almighty. Understandably, though, Naomi's having trouble seeing how God could possibly be working for her good. How could he possibly be working for my good? She goes on to say that she left full. I, she had a husband. She had two sons, a future. She had hope, everything. She had, it, she had it all. Yet now she sees herself as having nothing. Everything good has been taken away from her. Everything good has been stripped away from her. Is that true? Has everything good been stripped away from Naomi? No. Has she been left with nothing? No. She has Ruth. She has Ruth, whose name actually means friend or companion. Friend or companion. And this friend and companion is one that is committed to never leave her. She's committed her total loyal love 
and permanent devotion to her. And the writer closes by giving this summary. This is how this chapter ends, which sets really the stage for the next, for the, uh, next following chapter. He says, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, the significance of saying this, that the beginning of the barley harvest is to signal that um, something arrival, something good is happening. The arrive, there's arrival of celebration, okay? A time of plenty is coming following a, years and years of devastation, and there's, there's now food. It's time, there's going to be a celebration is coming. What this is saying is hope is on the horizon. This is what the author wants us to hear. Hope is on the horizon, in the midst of all what's happened, hope is on the horizon. God is at work in Naomi's life. And everything that has happened and everything that is going to happen is rooted in God's sovereignty. Everything. Nothing that she or Ruth have experienced can they contribute just to chance. Oh, there just so happened to be uh, no rain for two years. Just so happened that that happened. Not the smallest detail. And the same is true for you and I. The very same truth. One commentator I read uh, said this. He said, what the world attributes to large, impersonal forces of nature and chance, the scriptures attribute to the sovereignty of God. Nothing happens just by chance. Although Naomi, Naomi believed that God was against her, the reality is that in his sovereignty, he was allowing her to experience tremendous pain and loss in order that she would eventually experience his tremendous loyal love and devotion. Now, I know this opens up a can of worms, and we're not going to go there with what's our part to play in that, and where we, what we deserve, what we've done, all the, how we've created problems for ourselves. The bottom line is God wants to intervene into our difficult situations, not just to get us out of them, but to show us his incredible said, his incredible loyal devotion to us. As we will see, ultimately, in this story, it's to bring about the redemption to thousands of generations. Literally, this book, at the end of this book, we're going to see how Ruth plays a vital part in Naomi's life in the salvation of the world. <laughs> it's an amazing story. This is no Harlequin romance, okay? We're going to see the romance stuff coming up soon, but the tragedy has happened now, but it's, God is going to use this for amazing purposes. Because the truth is that oftentimes life's circumstances, what they do is they obscure our perception of what God, of God, and we're tempted to rely on human logic, aren't we? Things are going bad. Okay, what could I do? What, okay, who do I blame? Who do I, you know, don't we do that? Okay, we, okay this is why this, is why this per, we, we go to human logic with that stuff. We want to interpret life's circumstances in a way that makes sense to us. Okay, God, you must be against me, or, or you've abandoned, or it's because of this person, and you, I know you didn't want that to happen, and we just go to all these places. So often, God's sovereignty doesn't make sense to us. It just doesn't make sense. We believe that loyalty and devotion from an all-loving and all-powerful God should look a certain way, don't we? 
it should look like whatever our interpretation. And we need to remember, we need to never forget what God told Isaiah when he said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Who are we to stand up and say, God, how dare you? How could you? This had to have no purpose whatsoever. Well, your thoughts aren't even anywhere close to mine. Can you imagine what, when we get to heaven, we're going to go, oh my gosh, I was a buffoon. You know, <laughs> like, I can't believe God's ways. Oh, unimaginable. That's what's happening here. Number six on your, on your notes. The question for you and I is, th- is this, is will we allow our circumstances to make us bitter or we will allow ourselves to see them as a part of our loving heavenly father's sovereignty in our lives, knowing that he is in complete control, that nothing, nothing happens to us outside of his influence or authority, nothing. Because here's the freeing truth, you guys, number seven on your notes, freeing truth that we need to come to believe is that believing that God is sovereign over every detail in every moment of our lives is what brings tremendous hope. This is where hope comes from. Knowing that this is not random. Knowing that God loves me, this loyal, has said, committed always to me. That brings hope. We can know for certain that things we experience aren't random. And that God may allow hardship and adversity in our lives in order to set the stage for him to intervene in order to do amazing things so that we can experience this loyalty, love, and devotion in a a deeper way than we could ever imagine. I don't know about you, but I want to know God's love for me more. I pray for it all the time. I'll tell you what I don't pray for is that God would show it to me through suffering. Anybody here pray that? Don't tell us because that's weird. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's not. It's, I, I want us to pray that. I want, I want to get to the point where I can pray, Lord, Jesus, I want, to know, I want to know Jesus, and I want to know him in his suffering. I want to know what it's like to suffer as he did, so, not just to be a martyr, so that I can experience him. I can experience so much of him, what his love is like, what his devotion is like. I want to know that. Really, may we learn to pray and desire that. This is why I want to close with just a little affirmation of what I think is so important. This is why I think that it's really so important that we are living out life with one another in genuine community. You're going to be hearing, you've been hearing me harp on this, and I'm going to be going on it for months to come, that in order for us to truly experience all that God has for us, we need to be in genuine community with one another as we learn to live out Jesus' command to love one another. We can't love one another unless we're in one another's lives. To love one another with this fierce, loyal, and love devotion, loving devotion that Jesus has for us as we bear one another's burdens. 
I want you to know where I struggle so I can receive encouragement for you. I want to know where you struggle so I can encourage you. That's what the body of Christ is all about. As important as this is in Sunday morning, what we're doing, which is vitally important, this is not church. This is not all that church is. This is a tip of the iceberg at best. We need to be involved in one another's lives because the truth is we all have burdens and God does not intend us to carry them by ourselves or in isolation from our brothers and sisters in Christ. That was never his intention. We are desperately need to be involved in one another's lives in order to remind us of God's sovereignty. When we're going through difficult times, when we're struggling, when we're hurting, I need, you need each other to say, listen, I love you. God loves you. And I'm going to walk through this with you. That's an amazing thing to have. And we desperately, desperately need it. We need people to help us to see that God is in control in every detail, in every moment of our lives. This is what gives us tremendous hope. I tried to keep this shorter so we could still have time for our question and answer. So... I'm still going to go. Couple questions. What is it that makes trusting in God's sovereignty so difficult, especially during difficult times? Think about that for a second. What is it that makes trusting in God so difficult, especially during different difficult times? What do you think? Yeah. This is the devil or my own sin or somebody else. Ken God. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Get, get great, Ken. That's so good. Yeah. What else? Anybody else? Why is it so? What makes it so difficult? Yeah, Mike. Exactly. It's so hard to have perspective, isn't it? So hard to have perspective. That's why we help each other have perspective. So important. Yeah. Yeah, totally, don't we? Yeah. I know what would be best for this to come out good. <laughs> yeah. Here's what a good ending is. Let me write it. Yeah. It's good, Paul. Yeah. Anything else you can think of? Yeah, Robin. Exactly. Yeah. That's a hard one to reconcile. Yeah. That's the beauty of God being in control. He'll even use the bad for our, for our good and his glory. Yeah. All right. Next question. Oh, go, go for it. Um, the man who's turning 88 tomorrow. <laughs> and 66 years of marriage. Yeah. Okay. I think that's the bigger one that we're... <laughs> Go ahead, Dwayne. Oh. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think we 
That's so good. You guys hear that? We tend, to, we tend to follow and believe in the philosophy of our culture more than we do what the scriptures have to say about how life should be lived and how, what we should expect. That's so good. Okay, second one, last one. Um, and this, I don't know if you have anything, but I would just love to hear if anything comes to you. What has this sermon or this message taught or reminded you about God? And you can stop there if you want. But if you could more, what has it taught or reminded you about God? And how might you apply this to your life this coming week? What has it taught you or, remi- or just reminded you about God? Yes, Michelle. Yeah. That's hard, but to do yeah, but stick with Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. I think the recovery community has an awesome statement that we all need to adopt as Christians, one day at a time. So important. Anybody else? Anything that's just, just kind of just reminded you of, refreshed you? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, that's a, that's a great point. We think it's going to be, it, it can only be good if it goes, when it might just need to go, and that's awesome. Yeah. And I would add to that, and each other. It really is. It's a picture of all the, it's a picture of all of it. Yeah. Yeah, Paul. gave me one of the commentaries I'm using. It's by a Messianic Jew, best of the ones I'm using. Best. It's so good. Yeah. Anything else? Anything else? Anybody just wrap this up here that just kind of this has taught you or reminded you about God and and maybe how that will play itself out as we, as you go through this week. So good. Yeah, so good. Yeah, that's great. Well, we're going to move into a time of communion now. And uh, once again, you know how we do it here where you just can come up and take communion on your own. I really want to encourage you during this time as we, as we think about God's sovereignty and God's has said that, that deeply loyal, committed love 
that he has for us. This is a great opportunity. This is a great time to just reflect on that, to thank the Lord for that, spend time with him, even confess if there's anything you need to be confessed as far as maybe you've been angry with God, which is so easy to happen with us. We, you know, that, and just kind of being bitter like we talked about and get her. This is a great time to do some business with the Lord. So as, as Robin plays and there'll be people to play, pray up here, I believe it's Joe and Joe will be up here. Please, I want to encourage you to take advantage of being prayed for over here as well. Uh, it could be about this, what we talked about. It could be about anything. But let's let each other bear one another's burdens. Let me pray. And then you're free to come up, take it as you will during the song. You can take it up here or take it back to your seats. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for a wonderful example of love, of loyal love and devotion. Thank you, God, that we can trust that you are in complete control of everything. And this happens because we have been grafted in because we, because of Jesus, we are now your people. We thank you so much for that, God. And I pray, God, that as we go on with our week, that we would remember how in control you are and how much you love us. In Christ's name.